0: The construction industry in Indiana has depended on Quality Supply and Tool, a local family-owned business, to
1: deliver quality sales and service over the last 25 years. The employees make the difference, like sales expert Nick Worley.
2: What sets us apart is we only offer quality tools and supplies from quality manufacturers. We have a quality-trained sales and service staff knowledgeable of the products we sell and offer. Quality, it's in our name.
0: On South Harding Street in Indy, plus Jeffersonville, Bloomington, and Lafayette, Quality Supply and Tool thinks outside the box. Store
2: only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Point and uh, Bobby
3: Unser, for instance. Stand by for
2: the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth...
0: Beyond the Bricks, with Jay Query and Mike Thompson, brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool, think outside the box, store, on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Hey, good evening to you on a sun-splashed, absolutely gorgeous day today, Monday in Indianapolis, and race week is here, the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Set to take place, of course, in six days. Forecast looks fabulous for that as well. We do know, as I'm sure you heard mentioned on trackside or throughout the course of the day, that unfortunately incident today after a caution-free, except for track inspections, practice and qualifying sessions leading up to today, today an incident at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway with Katherine Legg and Stefan Wilson, uh making contact in turn number one certainly hope the best for both those drivers that fortunately were awake and alert um once the amr safety team was able to get to them but we certainly hope the best for a couple of the finer people that you're going to find in the field both from great britain stephen wilson and katherine leg my name is jake Query mike thompson is here as well and mike Kind of fitting as we get set to talk about some of the legends of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway to take a look at the starting grid for this year's race because one of the real storylines, I thought, amongst many throughout qualifying, one of the real storylines was once you got into that fast 12 and took a look at some of the speeds or even in the top 15, Santino Ferrucci was a great story who was going to start inside of row number two. And then, as well, the fastest rookie qualifier who will be toasted by the American Dairy Association of Indiana tomorrow with the fastest rookie luncheon, Benjamin Peterson. Both of them driving for the team and the owner. That is one of our topics tonight in our look at the legends of the speedway.
4: Yeah, I thought it might be fun to have some, uh, some sound with legends that we haven't really run these specific sound bites in the past, uh, hearing the legends on different topics. And so we get to hear from uh, leading off tonight, A.J. Foyt. And, of course, they had a great weekend. I mean, Santino had a great weekend. Obviously, you mentioned Benjamin Peterson. What a surprise Benjamin Peterson was all weekend. So I just thought it'd be fun to hear some, some clips that we may not have heard in the past of the legends talking to. Uh, these are interviews I did of, a few years ago with uh, some legendary drivers talking about topics that, uh, you know, we may not have heard from them in the past on.
0: Well, certainly when you talk about the legends of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, you start with the man where it all began, January 16th of 1935 in Houston, Texas, Texas, easy for me to say, when Anthony Joseph Foyt Jr. came into the world. Of course, he would quickly be known as A.J. Foyt. He was the son, like so many probably, Mike, of the drivers of his era, the son of a guy that was known to kind of work on some cars and grab a wrench here and there. And so it didn't take long for young AJ Foyt to kind of get that. I don't know if you'd say the racing bug, Mike, but he was certainly introduced to the auto mechanic or engine bug at a very young age.
4: Yeah. And it wasn't long before he not only was grabbing like wrenches out of his dad's uh, garage, he was also grabbing the dad's, his dad's car. Um, I had heard a story years ago that he had borrowed his dad's midget and tore up the yard driving the midget around. And I always wanted to know whether that story was true or not. So when I had the opportunity to sit one-on-one with A.J., I had to ask that question.
0: So A.J. Foyt, by the way, was given a small, as a young boy, a small racer with a lawnmower engine. Maybe he got it confused with that midget. Who knows? But uh, Mike was able to ask A.J. Foyt about the time that he just went ahead and went for a joyride around the front yard.
1: I want to ask you about something that I read in your book a long time ago. Did you actually
5: steal one of your dad's midgets and tear up the yard? Did that actually happen? I hate to admit it. Yes, it did. And uh, I didn't steal it. I just took it off the trailer, and then I had my friends all push and get started, and then kind of backfired because it was carburetor back then and, and caught fire. And we got it out, but it burnt the paint all off the hood and all that. And uh, it's a wonder I'm able to talk to you because my daddy was kind of narrow-minded about things like that because... One time I outrun the cops when I was a young boy and reported my car stolen, and I lied to him. I got punished for one year at the house, had to be at the shop every day by 3.30. He took me home. My grandmother and mother begged him on Christmas Eve, let him go out, and it was like a month before it was over. He said, I said one year, and that was it, one year. Gotta love it. Gotta love the old school
0: discipline um, for A.J. Foyt. But Foyt was still able, even after that Christmas where he probably had to sit at home, eventually he was racing midgets in his own right. He did so, as a matter of fact, starting at the age of 18 in 1953. And what's funny, Mike, is when he first began racing midgets, I guess his father ultimately forgave him because his dad was helping him out and starting out that racing career.
4: Oh that's right. I mean his his father sometimes doesn't get enough credit for all the the hard work and and you know everything that Tony Foyt, uh, you know AJ Foyt senior, Tony Foyt, uh, you know did for AJ Foyt Jr.'s career. In
0: 1956, AJ Foyt was in the night before the 500 in Anderson, Indiana. That was his first USAC midget start and then he got his first win in 1957. Then by 1958 Anthony Joseph Foyt Jr. was introduced to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and Mike talked to him about the first time he came to the famed Oval at 16th and Georgetown.
1: I want to ask you about your first time when you were here. In 57, I know you said you watched from the stands and Paul Russo crashed in front of you, and you kind of thought, well, do I even want to do this? Well, that's quite
5: true, you know. Uh, Actually, my first year, I rode up with some friends. I was very young, 1955, and in 1957, I was up in turn one when he blew the tire on the, the great Novi. And then I got thinking. I don't know if me running a little short track, AJ Foy wants to race here. And definitely after my good friend, Pat O'Connor, helped me on some sprints at Salem, Indiana one time, went over and jumped on a mechanic and said, I told Pat, I said, this car is doing this, and that. And he went on and felt and he told the mechanic, you're trying to kill this kid? And uh, they fixed it. And uh, I had a lot of respect for him. And then the first year in 58, when all that tragic accident and then He, you know, lost his life, and that's when I really decided, I don't know, this might be a little rough for this kid. Well, 1958
0: was his rookie year as a driver. A.J. Foyt, as a matter of fact, started 12th, finished 16th. He spun on lap 148, managed to finish the race in 59. A clutch dropped him out in 1960. And then in 1961, A.J. Foyt did something that no one would probably anticipate he would do another three times. Mike was able to ask him about his first win of the Indianapolis 500.
1: You know, you're leading, you had that situation where you didn't get all the fuel in, and you had to be kind of just disconsolate when they told you, hey, you got to come back in again, and then Eddie comes in again.
5: Well, that's quite true. You know, uh, when they give me the board, you didn't have all the radios like you have today, late stop, and I'm thinking, what do they mean, late stop? And then they put late stop fuel. You've seen the board. And I'm saying to myself, man, this is hell. No, I have it. I felt like I had it one, then I lost it, and then when to come in, and then Eddie all that time had a load of fuel and was trying to run with me with a light load of fuel, so he actually wore the right front out. And when he did come in, I think three or four laps or whatever it was, two laps I don't recall, but his tire done wore through two layers of card. I mean, he couldn't have probably went through one more turn. He pushed it to the limit. And uh, there's one deal that you race hard all day. You felt like you had it won. You lost it, and then it comes back, and you win. So, that normally don't happen here.
4: And I'll tell you, Jake. Obviously, you know AJ Foyt. You know what a legend he is, and you know what an incredible person AJ Foyt is. One of the greatest honors of my life was getting to sit with AJ Foyt for a half-hour sit-down interview. And you don't, you will understand this, but maybe people at home may or may not understand. When you ask AJ Foyt a question, and his first response is well, this is quite true, you won't believe what a smile that put on my face. I mean, I I got that several times, and every time I asked A.J. Ford a question, he said, well, that's quite true. That just That's just validation to me. I don't know how you would feel about that, Jake, but that to me was one of the greatest moments of my life because I said, I asked A.J. Ford a question, and he answered with, well, that's quite true. I mean, I felt like I really had made it that day.
0: Well, this is quite true. Um, Robin Miller had a great video that he did on YouTube, the late, great Robin Miller, who – had one of the great ups and downs, mostly up, relationships with A.J. Foyt. They were very close for the last probably 20 years of Robin Miller's life, and Robin did a fabulous video um, of all of the A.J. Foyt euphemisms, and none of them was A.J. Foyt more synonymous with than, well, this is quite true. But A.J. Foyt is a race car driver. When you say that he was the most accomplished driver, certainly domestically speaking, I think one would say this is quite true. His list of accomplishments, virtually unprecedented. He won a USAC Sprint Car Series Championship. He won a USAC Champ Car Championship. He won a USAC Stock Car Championship. He won a USAC Silver Crown Championship. He won an IROC Championship. He's the only driver to win the Indianapolis 500 four times, the Daytona 500, the 24 Hours of Daytona, the 24 Hours of Le Mans, the 12 Hours of Sebring. He's in the International Motorsports Hall of Fame, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Hall of Fame. He was named the co-driver of the century by the Associated Press, obviously, for the 20th century. Listed as one of NASCAR's 50 greatest drivers, National Sprint Car Hall of Fame, Motorsports Hall of Fame of America, National Midget Auto Racing Hall of Fame, one of NASCAR's 75 greatest drivers in 2023, 128 races in NASCAR over the course of 30 years with seven wins and 36 top tens. And then, of course, the all-time winningest driver when it comes to USAC and open wheel racing. So Mike simply asked A.J. Foyt the question, with all of that, all of the accolades, all of the accomplishment, all of the trophies, the Hall of Fames, everything that goes into it, what was it like to accomplish everything there was to accomplish in the sport of racing?
1: With all your accomplishments, everything you've done, four-time winner, we listed them all a few minutes ago, all the championships, all the wins.
5: Is there anything in racing you didn't do that you wanted to do? To be truthful, you know... I went to all the midget races I wanted to, the sprint car races, and even like the day afterwards, uh, I can't remember, I think it was 64 or 67, they had a race at Eldora, no, um, New Bremen, Ohio, and so I loaded up my sprint car, and it was my own car, I was going over with Jed Larson before he lost his life, he said, well, if you win this race, I'm driving your car, I said, no, 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 so I pull in kind of late with the car, and he was driving some mail. He come over, he said, I told you, you're not driving. You're taking the day off. So I unload the car, and he practiced with it, and he won the feature going away. And I said, damn it, Judd. He said, no, I told you, I was going to drive your car. So, uh, no, I, uh, you know, that's one thing. I used to go to Terre Haute with Don Smith. I'd ran just as hard over there for $2. I did for $2 million. It made no difference on the purse.
0: You know, Mike, I'll be honest with you. It is so similar to a guy, and there are so many drivers that, of course, have looked up to, emulated, understandably so, and patterned themselves after A.J. Foyt. And that story right there, if you were to put it into modern terms, not that A.J. Foyt's not modern, but that is Tony Stewart through and through. You know what I mean? Tony Stewart will run at Terre Hot or he'll run at Eldora, or he'll, he will run at... Uh, Daytona, and it doesn't matter what the purse is or how many people are watching on television. He's there for one reason, one reason only, and that's to finish ahead of you.
4: That's right. Tony Stewart, Kyle Larson, all cut from the A.J. Foyt cloth. There's no doubt about that.
0: A.J. Foyt, of course, just one of the legends of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We'll hear from a few more
2: when we come back to Beyond the Bricks. Coming to James Tavern for dinner is like coming home home to the friendly, inviting traditions of America. Cordial service, charming atmosphere, hearty dining, as you will discover when you savor our Savannah pork rib roast, tender New England scrod, or Cascade flounder almadine and for a big finish now there's something very special the strawberry finish line a tantalizing dessert bar reminiscent of old-time strawberry lawn festivals you'll find fresh strawberries prepared in the most appealing ways strawberry shortcake fresh strawberries with sour cream and brown sugar strawberry pie and that aristocrat of strawberrydom, strawberry chantilly Made with strawberries, whipped cream, and Grand Marnier. Come home soon to James Tavern. After the Indy 500, make your dinner a winner, too. At James Tavern, 8601 Keystone at the Crossings. This is Beyond
0: the Bricks. Brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. You had to do it to me, didn't you, Mike?
4: It's time for that aristocrat of strawberry (laughs) dumps.
0: You know we've been doing this show (laughs) for a while together when I can't keep a straight face without the sounds of the strawberry. I mean, that was the longest. I'm not kidding you, Mike. We've done this show for three years. We have played starting lineups from like the mutual broadcasts from 1952 where they listed 33 drivers the sponsors the hometown the average speed the car manufacturer all in a shorter amount of time than that fella just listed off the strawberry menu right
4: well that's because of the strawberries and sour cream and brown sugar and everything else they put together in that
0: (laughs) good lord It's a wonder the place isn't still around. Jake Quarry, Mike Thompson here. It is Beyond the Bricks. We're taking a look at some of the legends of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. There is perhaps, obviously, as we talked about A.J. Foyt, when it comes to American racing, I don't know that you find a bigger legend. But then again, when it comes to international fame and claim as the most versatile accomplished race car driver in the world, then I don't know that you could necessarily go any further or have to go any further. Then Mario Andretti, who is, of course, one of the great ambassadors today for open wheel racing, for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, for the Indianapolis 500. He certainly needs no introduction or explanation. 29 Indianapolis 500 starts. He won the race in 1969. Mike, I think it's safe to say that when you talk about somebody who is synonymous with racing worldwide, I don't know even to this day still that anybody's name resonates more than Mario Andretti.
4: I would agree with that. I mean, you can be a casual fan. I mean, even my mother-in-law, I mentioned Mario Andretti and her ears perk up because she she doesn't follow racing very much or anything like that. But I mentioned Mario Andretti and she immediately knows the name Mario Andretti, things like that. So you're right. I mean, he's, he's just such a global icon and he's such an incredible ambassador for the sport.
0: Literally, his name has become a euphemism for speed anytime that you're referenced by the charlie daniels band you're referenced by ice cube for that matter there are a few that would be like a greater pendulum amongst the pop cultural references in which mario andretti's name has become so well known we don't need to necessarily lead or, or or list i should say everything in which he won every trophy that he accumulated but he has been an inspiration to so many throughout the sport of racing the question mike asked mario andretti which is a darn good one for somebody who was a racing hero to so many who exactly was mario andretti's racing hero well
3: what was captivating was the fact that uh, at the time when we uh, i became enamored with the formula one uh, of course ferrari being at the forefront you know Formula One, of course, and Maserati, uh, Alfa Romeo, you know, uh, being uh, all these uh, major brands, you know, part of Formula One, and then Alberto Ascari was uh, world champion, you know, at uh, when I was a teenager, you know, at the early teens, you know, he was world champion 53, 54, um, and uh, of course, you know, uh, the world champion, everybody talks about him, and, and he looked cool, I love the way they used to... the used to describe him, you know, like he had ice in his veins and all that. He, these are all the things that uh, I think capture your imagination as a kid. And uh, and he was just a cool-looking dude, you know, that uh, you, you always figure, oh, man, I want to be just like him when I grow up type of thing.
1: One of my favorite passages in that book was when you came to America and you said, you know, here's Aldo and I looking like the great Discari in our Italian-made coveralls. And when you came to America, mm-hmm. I, I know you were like... I'm not sure I really kind of want to do this. And then you found a dirt oval in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. And how special was that when you first heard that sound? It was a different kind of racing than you were used to, but it it had to have really grabbed you.
3: Well, Quite honestly, uh, we arrived uh, here in the United States in Nazareth uh, on a Thursday. It was uh, June, you know, June, Thursday. So the season was in full swing, you know, with the local stock car racing. And um, we were at my uncle's house, which was about maybe a mile and a half away from uh, the the fairgrounds uh, and uh, it was on a Sunday night and we're just there just hanging out and uh, all of a sudden we see bright lights in the background you know and we hear this roar of engines all of a sudden and Aldo and I just looked at each other and we we just book we just follow that that noise and then we just peek through uh, the fence there and then we see these brute looking modified stock cars and um, you know the last race that we saw was the Grand Prix of Monza you know <laughs> in Italian Grand Prix Monza and uh, but again I always keep saying by looking at that it looked very doable like you know all of a sudden Alda and I look at each other and say man you know we could do this like Two years later, we started building a car just to race right there. You know, a stock car, and uh, we were 17 years old. Two years later, and then uh, the objective was to race. Uh, by the time we got, we reached 21, which uh, in those days you had to be 21 to race legally, professionally. And uh, but the car was done, was finished when we were 19, so we had to fudge uh, our. Uh, Birthday on, my, on our license, we had a guy to do that for us. And then, uh, so all of a sudden, uh, we were uh, 21, by 19.
0: The story for Mario Andretti, of course, begins even before that, when he was born in Italy, in the area that is now Croatia, on February 28th of 1940. But the area, of course, you're talking about in Europe during the war, in World War II, and the area in which he lived in Italy underwent a lot of different changes, becoming part of, as I mentioned, now Croatia. But for a while, it went from the Kingdom of Italy and then it became part of Yugoslavia and the Treaty of Paris and different treaties changed things and made it so that it was not easy, of course, being Italian in that time period. Many of them, of course, living in refugee camps throughout Italy, including the Andretti family. When Mario was 15 years old, his father, who had been a farmer throughout Italy, decided to follow the example, if you will, and the advice of a family member to settle, as you heard Mario mention, in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Originally, they were only going to come to the United States for five years. But of course, that changed. And by the time five years had already gone past, Mario Andretti was very accomplished, along with his twin brother, Aldo, in their racing career. You just heard Mario mention that came with maybe a little bit of liberty in talking about their age when they began racing. But the twist to all of it was the fact that mario andretti before he would become the most famous race car driver in the world the world might know of mario andretti but initially his father did not realize that mario was in fact a racer
3: well you know we didn't dare tell our dad because um, you know he was not up to speed on uh, motor racing, but all he could, uh, all he knew about was, uh, you know, what the press always talked about—the fatalities, which, uh, you know, were, uh, you know, pretty much the order of the day in in those uh, in those times. And uh, and as you know, on the way over on the ship, uh, the uh, that was during the 24 Hours of Le Mans, and that was the year when they, they had that uh, horrible accident with Pierre Levegue one up in a grandstand, killing 85. Spectators. Uh, so those were the news that my dad knew about motor racing. And uh, so when whenever we would breathe about racing, he said, Oh, you crazy kids. And, and there's no way that he would have really allowed us to even do it so as you said we, we our first season we had to do it to protect ourselves you know we had to just not say anything <laughs> to protect ourselves it was actually the language barrier quite honestly because it took him a lot longer to learn English than we did and, um, and again and the unfortunate thing is that he had to find out you know when Aldo got hurt at the very last race of the season in Hatfield Pennsylvania and um, so uh, in some ways, he probably felt that he was vindicated, you know, thinking, okay, you guys do something like that, you're going to be, they're going to bring you home and have a body bag or something. And, uh, and the worst thing was that um, the following year, when he found out that we were racing, he thought that we learned a lesson you know but um, you know actually while Aldo was um, still in a coma quite honestly I kept whispering to him I said hey Aldo you know I'm already building a new car to drive <laughs> you know the doctor said just just talk to him about anything that actually would you know and excite him and uh that he um and that's what i kept telling him you know say aldo yeah don't worry is uh you know we're gonna have a new car and all that sort of thing <laughs> in fact when he actually when he came around the first thing he said to me he said i'm glad you had to be the one to face the old man
4: <laughs> mario was uh very gracious to do that interview with me and he gave me so much of his time and was so willing to you know answer my questions about his early career and early life and one of the things I wanted to talk to him about was when he won in 1964, he had a book that he put out uh, in, in after winning the 569. He put a book out um, with uh, Bob Collins called What's It Like Out There? And I actually used to take that book out of my junior high library so much that they eventually actually gave me the book because they were so sick of me taking it out of the library all the time. And so uh, I actually... I learned a lot about Mario as a kid. And one of the things I learned about was his win at Salem in 1964 in the, uh, Joe James Pat O'Connor race and how important that was when he got that win for Rufus gray and how important Rufus gray, a name that people may not know. Rufus gray was a USAC car owner in sprint cars. And Rufus gray was really instrumental in helping Mario get, uh, moved on in, in championship cars. And I had to ask uh, Mario about getting that win in Rufus gray.
1: Your, your first big win in USAC, in, in the book you talk about how special that was for you at, at Salem with Rufus Gray. To this day, I mean, I can see the smile on your face thinking about that win. And, and you say in the book how... You know that that trophy still honored. It's an honored place in your yeah. house. How big was that? Was that the, was that the day that you really knew? Hey, I've arrived. When you won that against those big the big Usec stars.
3: Well, that's the point. You just said that. Uh, you know, just being uh, among the top drivers, which in those days, you know, all the top. Dudes were uh, and driving sprint cars as well, you know, and, and midgets and so forth. And uh, so, when you mix it up with those guys, and uh, you're able to uh, to pull off uh, a win, then you feel okay. Maybe, uh, maybe I belong here. You know, it gives you a wonderful feeling of, of confidence, of course. And uh, these are all the things that you're looking for. It's uh, uh, it's up to that point. Everything's a stepping stone. You know, every time uh, when you win, you know you. Feel you're going to move forward you know but then uh, at this point I was just looking for the ultimate you know from there he moved to champ cars and and that you know that all of a sudden you know the, the word gets around you know okay there's a new kid on the block and all and then they start paying attention and uh, Rufus Gray um, is probably uh, was Catalyst, you know, and giving me the opportunity to really at the right time in USAC for me to be able to move from there to Champ Cars because uh, when Chuck Halls got hurt at New Brayman, um, uh you know, sort of uh, uh, somebody suggested to Clint Brown, "Hey, why don't you give the kid a a try?" and um, and he did, and, uh, and that you know that was uh, God sent for me because uh, I was one of the top three teams, you know, that were was capable of doing the winning, and uh, and that's where I needed to be. And then, of course, with uh, Firestone, uh, he being one of the Firestone teams and then having the, the the big tire war with Goodyear, then we were able to get, you know, he was able to give me a lot of seat time testing, and uh, Firestone yeah, embraced me pretty quick, you know, uh, as a test driver because they, they just like the fresh... Input they were getting from me, you know, not being established. I was coming to them, you know, in a different way because I was just brutally honest with what was going on. And sometimes, uh, uh, when you get um, more experienced drivers, they're setting their way. Sometimes they even tell the engineers what they want to hear, type of thing. So uh, it all worked out tremendously for me. And um, and again, going back to uh, Rufus Gray, what he did for me was just phenomenal.
0: Obviously, what he did was help Mario get. That big win. But racing inevitably also comes not just with wins, which Mario Andretti had plenty, but loss as well. And sometimes that means the loss of competitors and, in Mario Andretti's case, the loss of
1: friends. You had two people that I know were close friends. Um, Billy Foster Mm. was was really close to you and Ronnie. And and losing those two... Um I know that's had a profound effect on your life
3: yeah you, uh, things are never the same you know it's um, as you say um uh, you know when you develop this friendship, i mean we have a lot of friends out there, but we were you know our families were together their wives and kids you know and uh and we we spend uh an inordinate amount of time you know together and and that's what makes it really tough and and yes uh I uh, consider Billy Foster my best friend at the time, you know. When, when he uh, when he was killed, and and then Ronnie the same way because uh, we just had so much such great time together. We used to just raise hell, period, you know, and have fun doing it, you know, on and off the track. And uh, on the track, we you know we respect one another, and uh, but off the track, we just stood doing stupid things that we had fun with, and um, then to lose them was just you know again just it's a tough one.
0: When we come back, yet another legend at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. In fact, speaking of loss, sadly one that we lost within the last couple of years. But we will take a look back at one of the other great icons at 16th and Georgetown on this Monday edition of Beyond the Bricks. is beyond the bricks brought to you by quality supply and tool think outside the box store on 93.5 at 107.5 the fan jake query mike thompson eddie garrison sam fritz this is beyond the bricks here on race week in indianapolis the 107th running of the indianapolis 500 mile race Set to take place in six days, and hallelujah. Final practice today, by the way, before carb day, I should say. Certainly hoping the best for Catherine Legg and Stefan Wilson involved in an incident in turn number one today. Good news, both getting out underneath their own power, uh, but we shall see what that means moving forward. Backup cars certainly would probably be in order for both, but we shall see. Uh, also want to let you know, this is the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race this year. But that's not to say that there's not plenty, whether it be ticket stubs, programs, buttons, whatever it may be that is of your fancy of the races of the past. The memorabilia show is the place to be this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Four until eight o'clock on Thursday. Three until eight o'clock on Friday nine until four o'clock on Saturday. Now, the Indianapolis 500 memorabilia show, you're saying, Jake, that's wonderful. You gave me that information. Where is it? The Embassy uh, Embassy Suites Event Center in Plainfield. Embassy Suites Event Center in Plainfield. Tickets are just $7, or if you plan on going all three days, 15 bucks covers you for all three days. So a bargain right there. Mike Thompson will be there as well, which uh, many would say is actually right there, the primary reason why you would want to attend. Taking a look tonight, talking about some of the legends of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And I think certainly if you were talking Mount Rushmore, which is a pretty tired topic when it comes to sports, but it's very clear at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway who is in that upper echelon. You have four now four-time winners. One of them, L.A. Castroneves will still attempt to get his fifth. He will be doing so on Sunday of course, Rick Mears, who is still involved at the Speedway and still seen. He had been a driver coach, for that matter, for Nevis, for a number of years. And then, of course, the second four-time winner. We heard from A.J. Foyt. We heard from Mario Andretti, who is a giant in racing. Alitzer Sr., who, of course, raced in, I think, probably the most famous or popular race car, the Johnny Lightning Special in 1970 and 1971, winning back-to-back years at The Indy 500, he eventually would become the all-time lap leader. Scott Dixon has since surpassed that, but he would win again in 1978, win in 1987. An illustrious, a decorated career. And like what we heard from A.J. Foyt, perhaps racing began for Allensor Sr. in terms of getting behind the wheel of a car when he wasn't supposed to and when he might have actually been doing so, leading to the scorn
1: from his elders. Allenser Senior on an
0: incident that happened to him as well
1: back in his childhood. When you were a young kid, I, your mom, I guess, used to tell the story that you, when you were a young kid, I guess you rolled one of the cars. You were like eight or nine years old, and I guess she she was too proud of you to even punish you for that. Is that really true?
6: Yes, it is. Yeah, it was a model A pickup, and I was running. like kind of my brothers had a kind of a racetrack laid out out there that they. If they were running super modified and by then, in Albuquerque, and uh, so I was out here one day, and and uh, rolled it over, and uh, went back in the shop and asked for some help to get it, get it back before my parents got back from downtown, and they just laughed at me. Well, they helped me. My brothers helped me, and the employees that my father had there helped me. But as soon as they my parents got back it wasn't five minutes before my father called me in so you know he, he knew more than i thought he knew you know or, or my brothers or the employees told him you know that i just rolled the car the model a over
0: <laughs> i would imagine eventually mike when it came to his exploits behind a wheel his dad probably forgave him correct
4: that's probably the case since it was a racing family and they you know they were probably used to all that stuff
0: (laughs) I would think um Al Unser came to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in 1965 and as you'd mentioned a racing family obviously his father his brothers we know that eventually his son as well in 1965 he arrived at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in a pretty decorated rookie class Al Unser from the get-go showed an acumen for being able to do what he did best, which was bring the car home safely. He was running at the end of the race. He finished ninth in his rookie campaign in the Sheraton Thompson Lola Ford. Then in 1966, he got an opportunity to drive a Lotus.
6: Well, you know, the the next year, you know, I run for Frank Harrison the rest of the year, Jerry Isaac and Frank Harrison. And, you know, we tried hard. I was a rookie. You know, there's where You can look back at uh, your rookie years and say, well, it was really a good training ground for me. And it was because it was a you know, a stock lock engine, a Chevy engine that Jerry Isaac and Frank Harrison was uh, trying to get, you know, to go fast. and, And Jerry Isaac built his own cars, built the cars. So, you know, you look at the car, he had a lot of good ideas, terrific ideas. And, you know, it was just one of those deals that That uh, then the next year when Jimmy Clark or Andy Granatelli comes and makes a phone call to me and he says, do you have a ride for this year's race? And I said, well, I'm with Frank Harrison. And he says, do you have a contract with him? I said, uh, well, no, not exactly. Just word him out. He says, you fly back to Chicago. because I want to talk to you. And I just, you know, he says, I want to put you in uh, Lotus with Jimmy Clark. I said, boy, I mean, I just, I couldn't believe the words, you know. And so I jumped on an airplane and flew back there and make a long story short, you know, we signed a contract. And then I had to call him jerry isaac and frank harrison and tell them that that i'd signed the contract with uh andy granitelli and team lotus and that was hard to do but you know it was one of those deals that it bettered my my standards you know of, of trying to get a car that i knew would make the race and of course that was uh, lotus had just won the race you know so it was it was a
0: it was a fun deal, and that nineteen sixty six race, Al Unser started twenty third. He would finish twelfth. Nineteen sixty seven, he started ninth, and then again in a pattern, he would bring the car home in the second position. He had an accident, by the way, in nineteen sixty six. In nineteen sixty eight, he started in sixth, and a gut, another accident finished in twenty sixth. Then something happened before he would win back to back races in seventy and seventy one. Mike, where Al Unser probably still thinks about the fact or thought about, I should say, before passing away, thought about the fact that that 1969 race, suddenly he was found himself in an uncomfortable and an unusual situation.
4: Yeah, that's right. A very unusual situation. Uh, You look at his record and people say, well, wait a minute, why wasn't Al Unser in the 1969 race? Well, that's because of rain indirectly. uh, Since it rained, uh, he and Parnelli Jones decided to do a little motorcycle uh, riding in the infield and ended up with, with Al Unser in the hospital so I actually had the opportunity to ask him about that
6: we were in the garage area and if you look up in the record books it was that was the first weekend of qualifying and it was raining so it rained out Saturday uh, for qualifying so finally we're standing in the garage and he says let's take a ride on the bikes until the crowd gets out of here you know, we'll just kill some time. I said, sure. We jumped on the motorcycles, and we were just riding around in the infield, you know, and not doing wheelies or anything like that. You know, I wasn't. And because uh, I wasn't that good on a, on a motorcycle, so I sure wasn't. And uh, I went down in a bar ditch, kind of I call the little side road ditch, you know, for drainage of water. And when I came out, I was sitting too far back on the bike, and the bike did the wheelie, and I just kicked the bike loose. Well, the bike stopped in midair and fell over, and the kickstand went through my, my ankle. gave me a compound fracture. Well, that just, you know, Parnelli comes running over to me, and he says, You okay? I says, I think I broke my ankle, my leg. He's no, you didn't. No, you didn't. He says you'll be all right. <laughs> well, we went to the hospital and it was a compound fracture.
1: <laughs> you guys were tough back then. I mean, yeah, you're all right. Rub some dirt on it, right? You can you can get back in the car, right?
0: Unser, of course, would win the Indy Five Hundred in 1970 and 71. Then in 1978, 1978 drives for Jim Hall, wins his third Indianapolis Five Hundred. Returns to drive for him in 1979 but then left the team after that. Al Unser on that decision.
6: Well, you know, I made myself a promise, and and, uh, once uh, I left Bell and Parnelli, that any time that I was not happy again, I would leave. Because if you're not happy, I don't think that you can produce what you should be able to produce in the race car if you're not happy. So... When Jim Hall and I didn't get along, I I just said bye bye, you know, and I knew I was giving up a good car, you know. I it's one of those deals, but you have to be happy within yourself and the team that you're with, and I, I just I wasn't, so that's why I left him. It was a competitive team as as he hired. Johnny Rutherford and Johnny wins the race, you know, with the car. And, and uh, you know, Johnny benefited, you know, from me quitting. But uh, I'm still not sorry today. I was not happy. So I made myself a promise that if I wasn't happy with the next team, I was going to leave them. And that's just what I did.
0: Allenser, of course, would go on to win his third Indianapolis 500 for Roger Penske in, or excuse me, fourth Indianapolis 500 for Roger Penske in 1987. Interesting, the storyline of each of our legends tonight talking about influence of their fathers from young ages. Allenser Jr. in 1989 had the opportunity to go out and demonstrate his displeasure with Emerson Fittipaldi late in the race in an accident. He recently told me that he decided to give a thumbs up when he realized that Allenser Sr. had once told him, if you act up, you don't race. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Bricks.